Let's get started with prayer. So, Father, we're looking to you now because we need you um, deeply. And without you, we have nothing and are nothing, and we aren't even a people. So please help us to understand with supernatural understanding your nearness, that we might know that you walk beside us and have drawn near for your glory and out of your love for us. Let that knowledge radically transform the way we live. Amen. Let's begin with a reading from Exodus chapter 33. One of the great passages of the Bible. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And then we'll skip down, skip the next five verses, which, by the way, are five of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. You'll have to read them later. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, 
and I know you by name. I hope you can all hear the Lord speaking these words to you this morning. Then skipping to Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. Right after God had said that, Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Exodus 34, 5 through 9. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. I want you to imagine being Moses. I want you to imagine that you're Moses right now. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. When you read the scripture, you should feel what Moses feels with your imagination, with your mind's eye. And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. The context of this passage is Exodus chapter 32. Does anybody remember what happened right before our reading today? Shoot your hand up if you know. Sid. The incident with the golden calf. So here's how it went down. And, and think as we recount this of the Lord saying, I'm, I'm not going with you. Moses saying, please go with us. And him saying, what you have asked I will do. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So rewind one chapter. Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain. God has come down from heaven and the mountain looks something like a volcano and there's like thick, dark uh, smoke and there's fire and the, the immediate presence of Almighty God is there and he's come down to, this, to the top of this mountain and Moses goes up to him and all the people are down there. Moses is with the Lord for 40 days, 40 nights, not eating, not drinking, being sustained by the presence of God. And all his needs are met. And in the presence of God, the Lord reveals himself to him. And the Lord makes tablets of stone. And the Lord writes on them with his own handwriting, the Ten Commandments. And Moses is it's almost time for Moses to come down from the mountain and bring the commandments down to the people. And in the meantime, the people go up to Aaron, Moses' brother. And they're like, you know, make us gods uh, that we can worship and that'll go before us. And, and Aaron's like, um, 
okay, uh, bring me your ornaments. Take off all your earrings. So everybody in the congregation takes off their little gold earrings. They bring them all and they give them to Aaron. And Aaron makes a furnace. Aaron takes the ornaments and he melts all the gold down. And he takes a tool and he fashions it. And it takes some time and he carefully works on it and he makes this calf should remind us of the gods of Egypt, the gods of Egypt that they trusted in, right? So he makes this calf and, and he puts it before them and they see it and they say to each other, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They had forgotten. It's this weird kind of forgetting. Like three verses before, they say to Mo, when they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods that'll go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And they're like at the foot of this like awesome volcanic like thing and they can literally feel the presence of God and there are like earthquakes and thundering and there's smoke and they're saying, we don't know what's happened to him because it's been about a month and a week. It's been about 40 days. It's been 40 days. And so Aaron makes this. And they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Like, that's pretty sick and twisted. We're supposed to read this, and we're supposed to think, like, those idiots, how could they forget? They didn't even forget. They just said, Moses brought us up. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea divided. Nobody had ever done that before. Nobody had ever seen that before. And they walked through the water, and then they were freaked out because right before they walked through the water, God gave the Egyptian army sovereign permission to come, and so they chased them, and God didn't open up the water yet. Instead, he himself came down in a pillar of fire all night and was between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And then in the morning, God told Moses, after they had spent the night next to God and with their enemies just on the other side, then he told Moses, you know, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and the water was divided. And they went through it. And then the, the, the pillar of God's presence uh, moved so that the Egyptian army could follow them. And while they're going through the Red Sea and coming out on the other side, they freak out. And they're like, God's abandoned us. Now we're all going to die. Like as if you didn't have lots of chances to die before. <clears throat> It obviously wasn't God's intention to kill you. Like, like Samson's mother said to Samson's father, if God had intended to kill us, he would have already done it. We would already be dead, right? When, when the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus himself, the Lord, came and stood before Samson's wife and promised a strong son who would deliver them, reminds us of Christ. So, so here they are on the other side of the Red Sea, and, and they've seen all this, and they, go, they walk a little ways through the wilderness, and God is providing for them food and water, right? They didn't have enough that they brought with them, but God had plenty and took care of them. And, and then, 40 days of waiting, and that's too much for them. So when we read that, we think, you guys are idiots. Like Moses is still on the mountain. God is talking to him. You're just about to receive the law of God. Like, what are you thinking? But when we read that, that should be one of our responses. Our other response should be, that sounds like what I did in college when I saw that wonderful move of God and I went to that 
youth group or that fellowship or that church. And, and, then, and then like three weeks after I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I, I did that thing or I got back into that. We should see ourselves. Put yourself in the shoes, in the sandals of the Israelites and, and realize that that was you there. That was the people of God. You're the people of God. When we read the biblical story, put, her, put yourself in the shoes of the people of God through all the stages of their learning and growth. It mirrors your life. So that's the context. So these people had everything. They, they were just delivered from 400 years of being slaves. Our country doesn't know what 400 years of being slaves means. Our country knows something of being slaves. Our country doesn't know about 400 years of it. The Israelites had more slavery than we ever did. God brought them out with a mighty hand. He did the same thing in our country. But there, they, they all saw him in all of his power and presence, from the least of them to the greatest. And now they have to wait, like a month, and... It's just too much waiting on God to act. Can you relate? Is it hard to wait for God to act? Yeah. God specifically waited just long enough. He waited the right amount of time to reveal what was in their hearts. And woe is me, I've done the same. So then God says, I'm not going to go up in your presence. If for a moment I went with you, I would just burn you up instead of sanctify you with my presence. He said, I, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not doing that. Go by yourself. And Moses cries out to him and says, no. And he says, okay, I'll go with you. You can see that an eternal atonement has been made for these people already. Moses' prayer was a prayer of desperation. He realized, like we do, that without God, without God's presence in our midst, like right here, right now, without God here, whenever we come together and as we go and when we return together on Sundays and other days, without God, we have nothing. We like the Israelites, desperately need God to come near. The nearness of God is really all we have and all we need. To be near God and to know Him and to be known by Him is life. Life with a capital L. It's not, being a Christian isn't about getting saved and then going to heaven. That's, that's practically a false, that borders on being a false doctrine. Being a Christian is about God coming down and being in our midst and about us knowing him. To know him is to love him. And we desperately need him day by day by day to have saved us as he did, to be saving us as he is, and to finish saving us as he will. And it's his faithfulness alone on which we depend. Quickly think about your lives. Think about your level of faithfulness. Do you really want to count on that?
I sure as heck don't for mine. Although some of you are much more faithful than me. But I would want, I would want the Lord to, I would want to know that no one can snatch me out of his hand. And when I go to sleep at night and I'm afraid, that is my comfort. I think of this big giant hand and me in it, and then I can go to sleep in peace. And like David, I can say, when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. And, and that's what I count on when I'm anxious. When I'm having a bad day at work or, or at home, when I'm in trouble, when things go wrong as they have a lot lately here, um, those are the scriptures I count on. And, and that's really all I've got. And that's all we have together is his presence. So Moses' prayer wasn't like a, please, Lord, be near me, you know, like we sometimes pray, which is fine. Moses' prayer wasn't a, please, Lord, come into my life and walk with me and go with me wherever I go and whatnot. Moses' prayer was a cry, a wail of desperation, and he realized that they had no hope if God didn't go up with them and that all of this was a waste of time but he knew that if God went with them, that they could do it. And that is the same for us, the exact same. There's nothing special about this people that made God want them. They're like the worst example I could think of of the people of God following God. Like they did such a bad job. And, and how different are we, really? God doesn't need them. In fact, God said in some verses that we skip, now get away from them so that I can destroy them and I'll make a great nation out of you. And Moses, and that's when we, uh, we got to the last passage, Exodus 34, 5 through 9, where, um, where God said, yes, I will go with you and I will be in your midst. So it was God's good pleasure to be with them, despite who they are. And that's the same with us. God does not need us. God could choose a different people. God could do away with us and find somebody else. But no, it is God's good pleasure to be with us and to remain and stay with us in the presence and person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see. Some people will come and go out from this congregation, but God is in the midst of us. In this season, as God tests us and prunes us and gives us grief mixed with joy, we can know together that we have nothing and no one here but him. And he must become everything to us. And that's why he's led this congregation to this place. God does some of his best and most loving work in our hearts in our worst and ugliest times. That's a rough quote from Paul Petrie who spoke at a pastor's convention yesterday. Psalm 34, 18, the psalmist wrote, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So 
when we are brokenhearted, and when our spirits are crushed. The Lord is near. The Lord saves. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And the problem with life when everything is going right and when we are who we want to be and when we're meeting all our goals and we look how we want to look and we have everybody's respect or, or everybody likes us, the problem with that is we quickly forget God and we quickly think, I don't need him. I have often felt that because of the great depth of the depravity of my sin. And so in his mercy, he has repeatedly brought me low and taken away that which I wanted and, and what, I, what I was waiting and hoping for, I lost forever and all I had was him. And he has been enough for me. And he will be enough for all of us, especially in this season. When God is with you, you don't need answers. You just need him. That's a quote from somebody at the conference yesterday. Here's another one from a woman named Margaret uh, Feinberg, who wrote, Wonderstruck, Awakened to the Nearness of God. Wide awake to the presence of God, I realized I had been so focused on asking why a good God allowed bad things to happen that I was missing out on the nearness of God all along. In becoming preoccupied with the why, I was missing the who. So let's move to another passage, Genesis chapter 28. I don't know if we have this on the slides. Um, Genesis chapter 28, verse 11. So you know something of Jacob's life. Um, I think we've mostly read Genesis. And when you read Genesis, you should read about Jacob and you should think, wow, this guy is like my spiritual ancestor. You should think like he didn't necessarily have much going for him, like pretty much nothing. He was... He was like the, the I, I mean, he was, he was full of deceit. Um, he, uh, he stole his father's blessing. Um, his parents were pitted against each other. And he did have insight and faith that God's covenant promises needed to be passed on to the next generation. And seeing that his brother had apostatized and had loved Canaanite women, which means joined with them in their idolatry, right? Seeing that, he, and probably being greedy, um, so there was a mixture of motives, likely. He went to his father at his mother's recommendation, and he tricked his father and impersonated his brother because his father was blind and, and towards the end of his life, and he, and he pretended to be his brother, and so his father blessed him, and the covenant blessings of God were passed on. And after that, after his father found out, because he went out from his father's presence, and then his brother Esau came in. Do you think his dad was happy? You know, if you read the passage, you can see his father's grief, like, cutting him in two. 
It's a very sad passage. And so then, of course, Jacob has to run, from his li- run for his life from Esau. And he goes and lives for over a decade with his uncle. And things aren't good for him there. And he's pretty troubled and oppressed by his uh, greedy uncle. And his, his life isn't very good. It's like if you were to think of the Christian life and like write a story about somebody who is a Christian that maybe could go on television on one of these you know, stupid Hallmark shows or whatever those are. If you've seen them, I hope you hate them. Um, they're really cute, but they're not true to life. And that's why I say I hope you hate them because, because they just don't represent any of our Christian walks. Our Christian walk is full of brokenness, messiness, and, and we end up being covered, our faces are covered with shame. And in the midst of these kinds of lives, he draws near when we're hopeless and helpless. And sometimes I have to be hopeless and helpless because I'm so faithless that I actually have to be hopeless and helpless to even realize, oh, I need God. And I, I wish it, hadn't have to, it didn't have to happen that way, but so often it does. So Jacob was in a place that he needed God, and he was asleep. Genesis chapter 28, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Is he a little poor? Like, all he has is a rock. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. Skipping down. Skip a couple verses. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So let's do some Bible study here. So what was Jacob doing during this passage? Call it out. He was sleeping. So was he trying to get to God? No. Was he living a pretty good life? No. Was he doing anything? He was sleeping. So he's, he's so to speak, unconscious, right? He's, he's completely uninvolved in what just happened, except that he's alive, although not alive in a way that you can do anything, You're just watching it happen. 
he was figuratively speaking dead, we might say. He was just lying there, right? Absolutely no chance that he could have actively participated in what just happened in any way. All of his effort, what little strength or ability he had was worthless to him until he woke up. And it was when he was asleep, like, like we find ourselves, that God came to him. Okay, think about that ladder or that staircase. It says it went up to heaven. So, so think about that distance. You know, if we think of, if we look up to the sky, that's a long ways away. Work with me here. So that's a pretty tall ladder. That's a lot of stairs, right? So, so one thought we should have as we read this is like, wow, that's a long ways away. The other thought is they're connected. We should be thinking, how on earth could such a great gap be bridged? How could something so far away be connected with something so near? You know, of course, if you have a ladder, a ladder can only be so long. Otherwise, it breaks under its own weight. I guess you could have a thicker and thicker ladder. I mean, this is getting kind of absurd. But, but the point is, and we're supposed to think this, we're supposed to think this is a supernatural connection. So the point here is both the distance and the nearness. You're supposed to hold both of those concepts as you read this without letting go of either one. The distance is, is a gap you could never climb. Like you would get tired and you would fall off long before you got, you know, maybe you'd get a thousand feet high or a few thousand feet high. Or if you're a professional mountain climber, raise your hand if you are, maybe you'd get 20,000 feet high, but eventually without supplemental oxygen, you know, and it's like 40 below zero once you get up into the stratosphere. Like, there's, there's no chance. There's no chance. There's no chance you're going to get there. You're not going to get there. You can't make it. You don't have the strength. You don't have what it takes. Okay, hold that with one hand. With your other hand, this just got bridged when you were doing nothing. You were just lying there helpless. And he made a way. And now you have a connection. The place where you are is connected by no fault of your own to the place where God is. And the Lord is standing above it. And he's telling you his name. That's a very personal greeting. And he's promising, I am with you and will keep you or guard you wherever you go. And I will, for I will not leave you until I have done. Like us, God came to Jacob while he was asleep and built a ladder right to his throne room where he is still sitting, same God, same throne. This is just a little ways back in history. Don't think that the Bible is like a story. This is a continuous account of God's dealings with man, and it continues to this day, although scripture is finished being written. God is still sitting on that same throne all these years later, and from that throne, he extends a ladder, a staircase, the bridge between heaven and earth. 
And who is that ladder? Who is that staircase to God? Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. The curtain was in the temple, in the, in the old-fashioned temple, and God wanted us to know the distance between us and him before he f- more fully revealed his nearness and coming out and coming down and coming among us in our midst. And so in the temple where uh, he had told people for a while, go there to worship me, he had them build this big, heavy, thick veil that you like couldn't cut with scissors. It wasn't like you know this little thin veil you could see through. It was like a thick thing. It was a wall made of thickly woven fabric. And it divided the, the holiest place from the holy place. And only the high priest could go in it once a year. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that's like the dividing wall, that is through his flesh. So Jesus himself, his body is the bridge between heaven and earth. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, that's with like the blood from a sacrifice, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, God wants to be with us. God wants to be with you. The goal is relationship. He wants relationship with us. He could have made Christianity a thing that was like about uh, just religious acts and ceremonies. He could have made Christianity a thing where it was like a bunch of rules or where there was some special caste or order or group of people that they were like the spiritual ones and then we were just like the rest of the people. But instead, God wants, it's not like that. God wants relationship with us. His main goal for us is not to get us into heaven. It's to get us into himself, said Paul Petrie yesterday. Life is all about knowing him. It's specifically about knowing him in these kinds of times. So, so your, our goal in life isn't to get everything fixed. Our goal is to know him in these kinds of times. I would encourage you that that's the pattern laid down in the scripture. God doesn't want you to be guilty or ashamed. God wants to receive you just as you are without you changing yourself before you come. But he wants you to sign the contract without reading it, to quote Catherine Weiss. He wants you to sign the contract without reading it. 
Come to him now. Stop resisting. Stop waiting. Stop being impatient for God to fix that thing. And come to him. Come now and leave your life of sin. We were all children of the devil. The devil is also called the thief. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we have all felt that sharply. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it more abundantly. Jesus would say to you today, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me saying, I am going, you have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. Again, Psalm 17, 5, the psalmist, out of his distress, after seeing one of the saddest evils committed, Um, if I'm getting the psalm right, I think this was when Doeg the Edomite, uh, I think Psalm 17 is the one with the subtitle about Doeg the Edomite. At the end of seeing this awful thing, the psalmist writes, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. In Psalm 65.4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Paul Petrie said yesterday, to know him is to love him. The journey to love is the door to the kingdom. Don't think of it as an altar call and then then it's done. Think of it as the journey to loving God and knowing him. And that's the door to the kingdom. Even Jesus, as he said, I am the door. So we come through him. We come through trusting that he bridges that gap and he alone. And we didn't participate in it, except maybe after he gave us faith to cry out, Help, save me. He did. Like Moses prayed. When Moses cried out to God and out of his distress, God said, what you have asked of me, I will do. I will be with you. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. 
and I know you by name. In closing, we'll read selected verses from John chapter 17, verses 3, and then we'll skip to 23. It's Jesus praying in the context of the bitter sorrow of betrayal by one of the twelve and the death he knows awaits him. And he says, in that context, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I am made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So, congregation, this is not a time to forget. This is not a time to, to, for, to think God is far away, we don't know what's happened to God. This is a time to cry out together and to ask God to go with us. And I can confidently assure you, he is here. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing and we have no one else. Who do we have who is in heaven but you? And earth no longer has anything we desire besides you. We realize now at the end of it all that that it was just fool's gold. So we pray that you would cause us to come to the end of our rope so that we can realize that we are in need of you, which is like coming back to reality, which is like waking up. And so, Lord, as we awake, we pray that we would be satisfied with your likeness. For in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Please heal our broken hearts even in this season of loss. In the mighty name of Jesus, who is able to do all these things and to bring us into his eternal presence, amen.